Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Uh, We are joined by Grace. Again, I want to say by popular demand, but it's also by just me and Ravi are like, we demand it. Like whenever Grace is producing an episode, we're like, you should also be on the air. But also it turns out the audience is like, yeah, she's really the best person on the show. So. Wow. Yeah. We, we were basically Ted Cruz. We basically were seeing where the parade was going and we got right out in front of him, pretended like it was our idea in the first place. Point we know I, we I was pro Grace. this before the audience was, I'd like to say. I was I, too, I, actually. <laughs> but I think like, I think this conversation is making the, me wildly uncomfortable. <laughs> I think we should do the I'm Jason, I'm Ravi, I'm Grace when she joins. Cause I, think I, I agree. A regular thing. I agree. We're gonna, then we're going to have this awkward thing every time we start with her again, which I think Where you guys have to justify my presence. I agree. Yeah. All right. Exuberant. From now on, that's what we'll do. Okay. Sounds great. I, I don't want to redo it. <laughs> that's yeah. fair. That's fine. Need to do it. This yeah. has been some charming banter at the top. All right. Yeah. Uh, I have a relatable thing to talk about. Here we go. <laughs> Let's hear it. I am at war with the squirrels in my neighborhood. I think it's the squirrels. It could be mice or rats. I'm not sure. But they they have cost me thousands of dollars by getting up into the engine block of my truck and chewing things. And then and I went and I got it fixed and I got back. And two days later, I was having problems again. I took it in. The guy looks at it and goes, you're not going to believe this. It happened again. So basically, I am to the squirrels in my neighborhood, what the family from Jaws was to the shark. They just keep coming back. And I have I have crowdsourced on social media all sorts of uh, home remedies for this, and I am throwing the kitchen sink. I have a question this. for you on this. As somebody who's a you know, long-time New Yorker who's battled mice and rats, for, I saw on social media you said you tried the electronic emitter and that didn't work. Yeah, that is in, the super. That's the thing that usually works better than anything else. So that's troubling. Well, now keep in mind, I, I have to park the truck outside because it's enormous and it doesn't fit in the garage. So it's only so. So that's like a sort of a thing that would work, I think, in a garage with rodents. This. So now I've got like spray and I've got some chili stuff. I'm going to wrap around the wires and like. I have an idea. Yeah. Yep. Here, take a extension cord. Get one of them that's waterproof, or just put it in a bag. And then put it on the red setting, like the electronic emitter, and put it right in, like under your. Because mm. uh, the light. I bet you that works. Ooh, yeah. that's a really I, I won the war idea. against mice in my apartment on this, and they they gave they were they were winning, <laughs> they were they were on the advance, 
And then I I put the emitter even on the medium thing, and they're, they're, I haven't heard from Robbie, you since. Robbie, I got yeah. 400 comments on social media about what to do, and nobody came up with that idea. I'm I'm adding that to the to the arsenal of stuff that I'm throwing at these squirrels. I'm I'm nearly positive, especially if you put it on red, it will work. Just be careful with your dog, though, around it. Make sure you turn it off when the dog's around because the dogs hate it. As someone who also lives in New York, I feel like this is great intel for the future. As someone who finds it incredibly amusing that your truck is so large it can't fit in a garage so that you massive. can't protect it. It is a big truck. It's it is. so funny to me. It's actually what I came to talk about on this podcast. It's a really big truck, and I, and I love it very much. All right, with that, uh, before we get into the news of the week, we want to let the listeners in on an internal debate that's going on around here. Ravi, you go ahead. You want to explain this? Well, we were in a meeting, and we basically realized that, audience, you are super substantive, but we all have sort of reptilian aspects of our brains. And you love episodes that have things like Joe Rogan in the title and things like that. But we have a mission to carry out. We want to make sure that we give you the substance and that we arm you with information so that you can persuade people in your lives. And how do we, how do we you know, reconcile those two facts? Well, we're going to start. We decided in this meeting that Grace did not attend, very importantly, that we're going to start every show with something a little bit more sensational, sometimes silly. We'll, we'll dispatch with it really fast, and then we'll move on. This was decided without Grace, and she uh, is really excited about that. Now, now I want to be clear. This was not a meeting that Grace was like not invited to. She just couldn't make the weekly production meeting one time, and that happened to be when we made this change. Grace, how, how did you feel when we told you about this at the beginning of, uh, you know, just a few minutes ago? I've got some qualms. I've got some concerns. However, I do think these things often come up and are at people's kitchen tables and in their conversations. So I am excited for them to be brief. How about that? Okay. Well, with that, let's talk about orgies in our nation's capital. Right. Well, let's play a clip. And this is from Madison Cawthorn, representative from North Carolina. He is an interesting member of Congress. We won't go into his history. I think people are probably familiar by this point. And he had some things to say about the culture on Capitol Hill. Let's play that clip. I mean, the sexual perversion that goes on in Washington, I mean, it, being kind of a young guy in Washington, remember the average age is probably 60 or 70. And I look at all these people, a lot of them that I, I you know, I've looked up to through my life, I've always paid attention to politics, guys that, you know, it, then all of a sudden you get invited to like, well, hey, we're going to have kind of a, a, a sexual get together at one of our homes. You should come. And I'm like, what, what did you just ask me to come to? Yeah. And then you realize they're asking you to come to an orgy. Yeah. Uh, or, or the fact that, you know, there's some of the people that are leading on the movement to try and remove, you know, addiction in our country. And then you watch them do, you know, a key bump of cocaine right in front of you. All right, folks, what do we think about that? This is such a great candidate for our new segment, by the way. Love this. Well, this is everybody's talking about this because th- this was couched. This was a question that was like, is D.C. really like House of Cards? And... Madison Cawthorn was like, oh, totally. And then needed to say something to substantiate that. My thought on this is two things. One, what is a key bump? I don't know <laughs> what a key bump is. And I, I think that's because I've never done cocaine, which leads me to believe that Madison Cawthorn has done cocaine and is the guy who he's seen do cocaine in Washington, D.C. That's the first thing. The second thing is I've never been invited to an orgy, but I'm 100% positive that's not how you invite someone to an orgy. We're having a a sexual get-together. Like like, like he, he paused right before he said it, and he was like, how would I invite someone to an orgy? I guess this is... Anyway, so one, that never happened. Two, I don't think that 
he would be able to uh, successfully invite someone to an orgy because that is a super weird way to do it. Grace, what do you think? I should go last. Is what I think. <laughs> you should go last. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I agree with you on the K bunk bump or whatever. I I too have never done cocaine, although I think given my energy, sometimes I've been accused of it many times. <laughs> uh, a lot of my staff members, though here, knew what it was, which makes me very suspicious. Uh, I'm waiting for the big thick it's, piece. It's pretty self-explanatory. You're just taking a key and using that to kind of shovel a little bit of cocaine. Oh, like up a there. literal, like a literal key. Like a, a literal bump, key. Now, a bump I know about because I saw right. boogie nights. It's just being yeah. assisted by the key so that you don't have to do lines. Oh, well, hold on. Who still uses keys? Like, do you not a lot have of people in the keys? city. In the city, you do because the landlords are too cheap to change the locks of the electronic locks. So I guess that's right. I live in a place yeah. where like you just know your garage code. I guess like I think yeah, keys people are pretty with ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah, keys. It's a pretty out of touch thing. I just said. Let's leave it in. I I want to know when the big think piece is coming about why these get-togethers aren't bipartisan. That's mm. what I'm waiting for. Like, I feel like- Who's this to be the say big... they're not? Yeah, that's a good question. I have some data on this, which I know, Grace, you're, you're really excited for me to be very quick about, but I'm gonna wait on that. I wanna hear what you think before I get to that. I, I think that unfortunately my take's not fun. And that is that, one, I don't care about this, what this man has to say. I think he has a pretty exhaustive, proven track record of fabrications. So I ignore it pretty easily. I think that the thing that is fascinating is the Republican Party has for decades weaponized any sort of sexual deviation from between a married and a church man and woman as being some greater sign of sin, even though if he's being invited to consensual sexual gatherings, like I would assume that that's a fine thing. So I don't understand the alarm. But what I think is there is this like assumption of perversion that is grossly misused. And while I don't care if the Republican Party wants to weaponize their own scandal against themselves, truly go cannibalize. I don't care. The thing that is challenging is that that type of language and that perspective is being used to persecute people who are already at the margins. And that is what I take issue with. And to me, this is just adding further fuel to the fire of calling the, for instance, the don't say gay bill in Florida, the spokesperson for DeSantis called it the anti-grooming bill, which is equating like actual sexual predatory behavior with people who are just a part of the LGBTQ community. And to quote Caitlin Burns, who was on the show, they just want to be left the fuck alone. So like, to me, this is emboldening of movement of seeing people who partake in any sort of sexual behavior that might be even slightly like off of the most norm core track as being a problem. And I don't want to participate in any of that, but I, I do not care. Okay. I agree with everything Grace said. I'm not sure she gets the whole whimsical nature of this first segment. But. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious I don't. Look, but. look who's throwing cold water on our, our, our new segment. God, Grace. That's why I said I should go Jesus. last. Well, okay. I'm, I'm going to step hold in on, and be hold like. On, hold on. Let me, yeah. let me say, I agree. I I don't care if anybody in D.C. has orgies. I don't even really care if they do drugs. I just don't think that this dude is getting invited to either. That's my point. I'm going to play my part here, which is to have over-researched for this segment, <laughs> which I think is what our listeners have come to expect from me. And so I vaguely remembered there, 
you know, back in when I was in D.C., there used to be this claim that Republicans had more sex than Democrats. And so I spent this morning a probably way too much time trying to figure this question out. And I stumbled upon this survey that was given by this company called Skin, S-K-Y-N. Do not put that in your browser on your work computer, everybody. Uh, and they basically asked Republicans and Democrats just a series of questions about like who they are on this kind of stuff. And the data is pretty startling. Uh, number one is Republicans do appear to have more sex. 42% of Republicans report having um, sex more than eight times per month, 35% Democrats. Republicans are more likely to experiment with significant age gaps. 44% of Republicans have had sex with someone twice their age. Democrats, on the other hand, are more likely to watch porn, uh, which is 31% say they've never watched it. Democrats, 43% GOP. Lots of questions about that data point, self-reporting. <laughs> yeah. uh, 38% of Democrats lost their virginity at 16 or younger versus 34% of Republicans. And now here's my favorite part of the data. I could talk about it more, but here's here's the, I'll give you the kicker here. Democrats are more likely to cuddle, use condoms and use dating apps, and they're less likely to fake orgasms. Good job, Democrats. Man, I really feel like we've nailed this segment for the first <laughs> time. <laughs> like this, this was a good first time with whatever this, we need to name this, which is. Unsubstantive, yeah. unprepared. There we go. I'm prepared, though, everybody. I really worked on this one. I really wanted to know. All right. Well, uh, leave us a voicemail letting us know what you <laughs> think we should call this first segment and yes. which team you're on. Are you on team? I really wish people could see Grace's face right now. <laughs> I know, right? I'm enjoying Just it. Just pained. Just team, pained. Are you on team, uh, you know, uh, we know Ravi and Jason? Grace. They, they or, like Grace. Team, they team... like Grace. We well, know no, you not like in general, just like on this issue. It. Yeah, we know that. I wrong. represent a team here, necessarily. Those facts were really interesting. I appreciated that. I do think that yeah, the self-reporting have... really probably colors it quite a bit. And you would imagine that Democrats are having more sex because there's just more of them. Oh, right. that's a really good point. It's a bigger but, population. But, no, a but they, didn't, they didn't account yeah, yeah. for that. They, they didn't wait the poll. I am assuming that our folks at Skin properly weighted this poll. I'm sure they're experts on polling. So wait, I'm, not here to, I'm not here to disavow Skin. Grace, Grace is not <laughs> interested in the percentage of Democrats uh, having sex versus Republicans. She's interested in the aggregate amount of sex. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 I want mass yeah. quantity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, then. If you're a regular listener of this show, then you've heard us talking about grabbing an oar, doing your part, taking action to help change the world around you for the better. Well, if you need more inspiration or just want to hear a cool podcast where others have done just that, then check out Art of Power, a new kind of leadership podcast from WBEZ Chicago. Each week, award-winning journalist and best-selling author Arthi Shahani interviews fascinating people from all walks of life who've turned their passion into real-world impact. She focuses on outsiders like herself, people who were excluded, who were told they don't belong, but who broke through anyway. Her guests are household names like President Barack Obama and names you don't know but should, like Gabby Pacheco, the dream activist who cornered Obama into action. No question is off-limits. Arthi takes you through intimate and unexpected conversations. That's her superpower. What's yours? Listen to Art of Power today, wherever you get your podcasts. Are you a young member of Congress who's looking for that extra bit of energy, but you don't necessarily want to give in to the habits of all of the purient hypocrites around you, but you want that extra edge and you want it to be healthy and you want it to be good for your body and in no way damaging to your body? Well, what you need is AG1. Yeah, in, in contrast to some of the stuff happening in our nation's capital, this is lifestyle friendly. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it contains 
less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or anything artificial, and it still tastes good. With AG1, you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance, and they have over 7,000 five-star reviews. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right. Speaking of uncomfortable consensual relationships, Ginny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, uh, is has been in the news lately. Now, to, to tee this up, a couple weeks ago, she gave an interview to the Free Beacon, which is a Republican or right-leaning out, outlet, which I think should have alerted us that something big was happening. Basically, she admitted she was at the January 6th rally, but she said she left early. Why would she, I'm thinking to myself, like, why is she coming out here and saying this? She must be expecting something to happen. And then lo and behold, we now learn uh, through text messages that have been released by the January 6th committee that she had a whole lot of crazy shit to say to Mark Meadows in, in text exchanges around the January 6th uh, insurrection and the, the November election. She said, uh, she texted, do not concede. It takes time for the army who's gathering for his back, meaning Trump's back. Uh, she texted to Meadows, help this great president stand firm, Mark. You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional government governance at the precipice. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. And Meadows texted back saying this is a fight of good versus evil. Evil looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. She wrote back, thank you. Needed that. This is this plus a conversation with my best friend just now. Who the best friend is? Is it Clarence Thomas? We don't know. She texts a whole bunch of other stuff, QAnon, conspiracy theories, just crazy stuff. So big question, what do we do about this? And uh, how significant is it that the wife of a Supreme Court justice is texting this kind of crazy stuff? I think, isn't the first question, can anything be done about this, right? I know it's got people very upset. I don't know that you can do anything about it. So there is a code of conduct for federal judges, and that code of conduct has some pretty clear language on this. Uh, it says uh, that a judge shall disqualify himself or herself in a proceeding in which the judge's impartiality might reasonably be questioned. And then there's a subsection of that that speaks to judges' spouses, and it says that uh, if, they, if the judge has personal knowledge of disputed evidentiary facts concerning the proceedings, and uh, it points to judges' spouses saying that if, they, if the judge knew that the spouse has an interest in the outcome of a case, they should recuse themselves. This is a this is a provision that is applicable to all federal judges, including Supreme Court justices, but Supreme Court judges have to self-regulate on this. This is relevant because Clarence Thomas has now dissented 8-1 twice now on cases related to January 6-1, which was a year ago, a case about challenges to the election. And that's relevant because among the many text messages in here, she, Jenny Thomas, was basically engaging in legal strategy discussion, saying, oh, we should use this person as a spokesperson for the case, et cetera. So that is a clear example where she was a kind of a member of the legal team in some ways, and he was the one dissenting voice on that election case. And then there was another case that just came down two months ago that was about records releases from the J January 6th uh, 
uh, committee where the white where the Trump team was trying to block record releases from January 6th. Now, that is super relevant because she's in the middle of these records. And he was also the lone dissenting voice uh, on the court there. Is that suspicious? I would fucking hope so. Like this is this is really on fire. Well, and it's relevant to what we just learned in the last 24 hours, right? Which is that there's seven and a half hours of logs missing from, I mean, it's just like the Nixon tapes. So th- like, I mean, we know why, but like we, we, we need to find the proof. The reason is, it's like he spent seven and a half hours doing shit he shouldn't do, but there needs to be proof of that. All right. What do you do if he doesn't recuse himself, right? Like you got to impeach him, which I assume is like impeaching the president, which would be pretty hard. Yeah, I do know that back in 95, he recused himself for a case that involved the school his son was at or had attended. And so there is at least some precedence of Justice Thomas recusing himself when the situation calls for it. I think, though, that the relationship of spouse gets a little bit more complicated because like parent to child, it's like very clear, like what your ownership is in that situation like it is in your absolute immediate interest the life and livelihood of your child the schooling of your child but the political and activist happenings of your wife are i feel like a like a bit more in that gray zone for someone who is not perhaps inclined to read the most generous version of that ethics ruling Former Republican strategist Tim Miller had a funny tweet on this. He said, as a general matter, I don't think people should be held accountable for their spouse's actions. But part of the deal with being on SCOTUS is your spouse can't organize a coup. That doesn't seem like too much to ask. <laughs> and that's kind of where I am on this because there's there's the legal part of this, right? And then the ethical concerns around uh, recusal and all that. And then there's the absolutely terrifying prospect that Clarence Thomas thinks like she does and that he's a QAnon nut too and that he you know, believes that the president, that, that Biden was uh, illegitimate and all that. And that is very likely the case. These are the, th- these are two people who are the closest to each other. They, it's not like they have a lot of friends. If you know anything about the Thomas family, they basically like, travel the country every summer together. They basically, they call each other their best friends. The idea that we have one member of the Supreme Court, regardless of recusal, right, who harbors these kind of views, to me, is really scary. Okay, now... Let me let me play devil's advocate for a second here. There's there's uh, a column in the Bulwark by Jonathan Last where he says that there's an open secret in Washington that nobody wants to say out loud, and he says, and that is that Jenny Thomas is an idiot, and the only reason she was even able to text the president's chief of staff is because you know of of who she's married to, and if she it wasn't for that, she'd just be another you know crazy person out there reading this stuff on Facebook. And uh, and I was thinking after I read and it actually uh, humorously, he compares it to Jared and Ivanka. And he says, like, you know, Ivanka, for whatever reason, got this position and then they had to give something to Jared. You know, there's there's these couples where they come as a pair. And he, he was like, can we just discount this, please? Can we not take this that seriously? And then I went back and looked at the text and like almost like so many of these texts or she sends something that she saw on Facebook or whatever. And then she, the only part that's original to her is she says, I hope this is true. And she says it over and over and over again. Where I get kind of lost in this uh, is like whether Ginny is being presented as a lady Macbeth, who is like manipulating her husband in this position of power with her perspective. And that's why we're so scandalized. Or if it's more that like, we're actually downplaying this and just casting her aside as someone who's like a crazy on Facebook because she's just a wife and a spouse. And like, we don't really have to care what she thinks. And 
I feel like I read articles that like provide both perspectives and I don't really know where I've come down on that. Here's my assumption. My assumption is that it is, it is like, here, here's the low end. The low end is that she's crazy and that he humors her at home and goes, oh yeah, okay. You know, that's the low end, right? The high end is that this is what both of them think because this is what they talk about, right? And that this is like, just <clears throat> she's, he can't speak about this stuff and she can, right? She it's claims that they don't even speak about their work, which anybody who's in any relationship is just an insane thing to try to claim. She is not credible human. And and here's here's what I think, is that if you benefit of the doubt, if you go with the lowest end of that, he, when he rules on that case, knows that he's going home to a person who feels very passionately about this, which is why, of course, he should recuse himself. Right. Well, I, I think like just to wrap this up, I think what I think needs to happen next is, you know, there's a question of what you could do about this. The first step is we need to gather information about this. I think a lot of the speculation about who's influencing who, et cetera, we may never know, but we need to find out certain things. Did she leave the rally before it turned violent? Did she communicate with Clarence Thomas in any way uh, that we can verify? And we certainly could ask her under oath about that. And, you know, she could lie under oath, but at least she would be lying under oath. Right. And then if any of this leads to him, then he needs to go under oath. I know there's separation of powers issues, et cetera. But this if if all nine members of the Supreme Court had this issue, the coup would have succeeded. So this is very serious, in my opinion. But I think we start with the questions. We need to start enforcing these damn subpoenas uh, before Congress. Agree with all that. Here's the takeaway for me and for our audience for stuff that like because this really is about like what should they say to other people about this topic or any other. The takeaway for me is the Meadows text. So read that again. So this is this is what Mark Meadows texted back. Uh, he goes, this is a fight of good versus evil. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. Very important that the king of kings is capitalized there. That Meadows text is clearly one of those texts that like he sent to one person. Maybe it was her copied it. And then, you know, he had like hundreds of people texting him that day. And like that was just a, that was a canned text that he sent to a lot of people, which means that was like his position on it. Right. And, you know, the biblical part of it is scary. But really, it's just if you read that text, it's like none of it is about like democracy or preserving it. It's about preserving power. And it's not about rule of law. And then he frames that as good versus evil. So like to me, it's if you're going to talk about this controversy, it's the problem is that the chief of staff to the president of the United States thinks that holding on to power, no matter what happened in the election, is a matter of good versus evil. And that's not what America is about. Well, uh, in other news, Biden unveiled a $5.8 trillion budget on Monday. And this budget obviously does a, a number of things. There's a lot of money in here. Uh, it has to Congress has to pass some form of spending bill by September. This proposal, which is, you know, obviously he's not in Congress, but this is kind of the opening salvo of a conversation. There are a couple notable things that this bill does. Number one is it proposes a minimum tax on billionaires. This would be a 20% minimum tax of people whose net worth is $100 million or more. Second, it has a, a new corporate tax rate. It increases the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%, basically bringing it in line with uh, 
the what it was before the 2017 tax cuts. Uh, it also invests $31 billion more than previous spending bills in defense spending. This is a 4% increase uh, and includes things like aid to Ukraine, increased technology, some stuff to ward off the threat from North Korea. Uh, it also uh, makes a um, $32 billion increase in state and local police staffing, which includes stuff for community policing, um, interventions against violence and gun trafficking. And then fifth, and really importantly, adds $82 billion for pandemic preparedness and other vaccine-related stuff. So those are the big highlights. There's a lot of other stuff in this bill. What do we think about this? I think what I find a touch challenging about this is that it was very much put forward as a way to inoculate Democrats against some narratives that the White House feels we're, the Democrats are susceptible to, which includes being soft on crime and responsible for inflation. However, I will say elements to address things that have been particularly hard over the last year with inflation, like costs of child care is gestured at. Some of these things that were in the original Build Back Better bill, but they're not made to be very specific. They just kind of say that these tax increases on the wealthiest will offset some of those policies. I feel as if that's something that is really popular that most all Americans want to see happen and is something that we could continue to lean into. So I found that to be confusing as to why that wasn't given more specificity and more emphasis. And then this soft on crime narrative, I also really struggle with in terms of thinking that adding more money for police spending after the last two years we've had is going to be successful with the Democratic base. So I think that while I see both of those attempts to counteract Republican narratives, I kind of feel like that's the Democrats continuing to fight on their terms and not putting forward their own vision and mission. And for that reason, I am concerned that this is going to accomplish what they think it's going to from a messaging perspective. Totally agree. I what, ha what I think happened here is that Build Back Better didn't get done. Everybody was on their heels and they're like, what do we do? And they started playing defense. Yeah. On the defund front, you know, I think what part of what they're reacting to is that the public, you know, since June of 2020, uh, public attitudes towards this kind of stuff have shifted pretty dramatically. And, and the Republicans have obviously seized on this. So all adults, this is from an October pupil, uh, the, the, when they polled all adults, 47% of adults say they want to increase funding to police, 15% say decrease, and 37% stay about the same. So increase wins the day. And then even if you look at Democrats, 34% of Democrats want to increase uh, funding to the police, 25% decrease, and 40% win the day. So w stay the same is the uh, plurality of Democrats and in that scenario. There's a lot of interesting data there. People should Google that. Uh, these, these perceptions are changing by the day. And I think, you know, you live in New York City too, Grace. This has obviously been the dominant conversation here. And this is like a big debate around our current mayor is uh, is around like his attitude towards this. And he's one of those Democrats that's even going further than Biden on this, making this like a centerpiece of his administration. Yeah, I think I, what I'm kind of confused by is that a lot of the polling data does change based on which specific questions you ask, including if you like say things like should non-armed community response be a part of policing like people are overwhelmingly like yeah sure why not or like should mental health experts be accessible for people experiencing overdoses or mental health episodes like people in general are in favor to kind of more community-based responses and biden's proposed budget does specify that like community response is part of what that funding is for 
it just feels to me that they're part of what has done the nation a disservice for so long is having such a black and white narrative about policing and on both sides of the aisle. And I think that when the Democrats continue to double down in that binary, I wonder why that is thought of as productive as opposed to forging kind of a new path or a new vision that doesn't necessarily defund, because to your point, that's not popular, but presents any sort of perspective as opposed to just like more of the same, which I just don't feel is compelling. Yeah. And one part, I think the nuance of that is the way people treat the uh, the criminalization of everyday life type stuff versus violence. And one thing that's really interesting, both in the polling data, but also I saw this anecdotally. I was at Alvin Bragg's victory party when he won the Manhattan DA's race. And, you know, I was his strategist and literally the first person to endorse him in that race. And he is like decriminalizing a whole bunch of other stuff. But that night, every person who got up on that stage that I saw mentioned guns and violence. And I think that's part of what's happening in this Biden bill is that's what you're seeing here. There's a lot here in, about guns. There's a lot about violent crime. And I haven't done enough work to figure out what Biden's messaging on this has been. I do remember, though, in that State of the Union address mm-hmm. where he said he made that defund line. And like there are two ways to read that. Like he said the defund line, which is obviously political red meat, which is the caricature. It is the binary. And then I think the sentences after that were more nuanced. And so there's, I think you can kind of read into that what you want. I think they probably want us to read into that what we want. <laughs> well, they're you know, trying that's, to. That's my sense. They're trying yeah. to reframe it. They're looking at it and going, "Okay, defund." Uh, you know, the way people interpret defund is super unpopular. The way people would interpret fund is super popular. So why don't we take the thing that we actually believe in, which is equipping the police with you know uh, more sophisticated. Uh, training and personnel to deal with people in crisis without using force. Why don't we just call that fund, right? So that's what they're trying to do. It, it We'll see whether it works, but that's what they're yeah. trying to do. Now, there are, there's like you said, there's some good offense in here, and I think the billionaire tax is it. I think we ought to be talking about the billionaire tax all the damn time. I mean, it makes sense. It, you know, it says in here it would generate $360 billion over 10 years. We could talk about all sorts of things that would pay for. But more than anything, like the Republicans are just so flipping wrong about this and they will fight so hard on it. And we could make every conversation about, yeah, we should do that thing you're talking about doing. We can't because you Republicans are against taxing billionaires. Like that should be our response to freaking everything over the next several months. We're in some tough financial times and getting financially healthy sometimes means dropping the weight of credit card debt. But where do you start when it feels like you're in this never ending cycle? Upstart can help you pay off your existing debt quickly and easily with a personal loan so you can start living your life. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score. So rather than looking at your credit score alone, Upstart's model considers other factors like your income, employment, and other information provided in your loan application to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate without impacting your credit score in just five minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. 
Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash majority54. That's upstart.com slash majority54. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash majority54. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. Whether it's hitting the gym, making time for your haircut, or even trying therapy, you are your greatest asset. So invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. Yeah, and I was just recently having a conversation with somebody really close to me, and she was saying, you know, when I grew up 50, 60 years ago, we just didn't have a language for this. Like, people didn't want to admit they needed help, and she was saying, I'm so jealousy you younger people who have all these tools at your disposal and it made me think of better help better help means that anybody anywhere can access high quality online therapy through video phone and even live chat sessions with their therapist and so you don't have to chat with anybody on camera if you don't want to and it's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you could be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours so you can give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used better help online therapy and majority 54 listeners get a 10 percent discount on their first month at betterhelp.com m4 that's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash M54. Speaking of rich people, we're going to transition to our beloved segment, Why Is This Political?, with something that is near and dear to our cherished Ravi Gupta's heart, which is the idea that we're going to have a new Buffalo Bills stadium in New York here. So there's a proposal in New York right now where taxpayers will be on the hook for $850 million in construction costs for a new Buffalo Bill Stadium under a deal announced by New York Governor Kathy Hochul on Monday, which would make it the largest direct public subsidy for a National Football League stadium in history. They unveiled this three-way agreement between the county, the team, you know, the franchise, everything else, to build a $1.4 billion stadium with at least 60,000 seats in the town of Orchard Park, which, but Ravi, that's where... They play already, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and under the deal, New York would pick up $600 million of construction costs, and then the county would kick in $250 million. And the bills, which are owned by the billionaire fracking magnate, the Pagula family, uh, and the NFL combined, they would pick up the final $550 million and sign a 30-year lease to use the stadium. And Ravi, my understanding is you are for this. Well, let me get to that, right? Our listeners... They come to know me as, as an objective guy, and I'm going to bring full objectivity to this. I normally hate these deals, so I'll start with that. Like, these usually handouts, it usually doesn't recoup, uh, the taxpayers don't recoup this through uh, increased tax dollars or economic activity. And full full I'm objectivity, the- by the way, coming from Justice Thomas here while he's wearing a Bills hat. Can, continue, now, hold please. on. This is going to actually make it... Like the fact that I'm a Bills fan should add credibility to what I'm about to say, which is I'm going to give you the cons first, and then I'm going to give you the other side of this argument. Like obviously taxpayer money, just one could argue, could be better spent elsewhere on more meaningful projects. Billionaires, including the Pagulas, are rich enough to procure private funding and investment on their own. Uh, you know, Pagula is worth $5.8 billion, for example. Uh, NFL owners uh, have seen increased profits year over year pretty dramatically, so there's reason to believe that they're going to get more revenue as time goes on, especially with a incredible juggernaut like the Buffalo Bills that are only going to increase their fan base. Uh, this is uh, an open-air stadium, um, and uh, it would limit use during colder months. Like, you know, it's not it's hard to imagine, like, the, the big concert or something in the middle of the winter in Buffalo here. This is actually going to increase the amount of 
ticket costs while also decreasing the amount of seats. Now, that all sounds pretty bad, doesn't it, guys? Now, I want to propose, though, we need a new framework for thinking about these stadiums. We need to think about public subsidies as being uh, directly proportional to the amount of tragedy that a fan base has seen. And there is no, <laughs> okay. there is no franchise in history that has seen more tragedy than the Buffalo Bills. Jason, you saw it front row when the Bills went up with sec mere seconds to go. What did I do? I turned around to the Buffalo Bills fans around me and I said, stop it because I know what was going to happen. Now, let me give you a couple other pieces here. There's relocation anxiety for the Bills. We're always worried about the team leaving as somebody whose dad has left him. You know, this is like, this is really, this Whoa. is, this is, uh, this is deep in my psyche. Uh, it's really important for us. This is, this is about more than sports. All right. This is about mental health. Uh, second, um, Western New York has been taxed time and time again uh, for projects that happen in New York City. This is kind of returning it uh, to, the, to the good people of Western New York who've been so generous. Uh, this is a huge boon to the folding table industry in New York City. Think about all the new fans <gasps> that are going to be excited Robbie. about this. And <laughs> all the new folding the tables. No, no. Uh, <laughs> now, all right, a couple more, and then we'll be done with this. What else are we going to be spending this money on? Education? Healthcare? Come on. And then finally, Josh Allen, he needs a nice place to play. Like, he just needs it. Like, he's the most important citizen we have in the state of New York, maybe this country. We need to have a nice place for him to throw the football. Uh, and so that's that's how I feel about it. Well, I'm, Those, you could, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying how I come out on this. I'm just trying to present you with both sides of this argument, people. I want to really appreciate the fact that Ravi and his desire to be objective first presented the objective argument as to why this makes no sense, and then decided in order to be positive about it, he needed to develop an entirely different framework for assessing the situation altogether. And I really appreciate that. I can say, Ravi, as someone who lost a team because a state would not build a new stadium, talking about the beloved Supersonics, I really understand the pain and the idea of losing a beloved team such as the Bills that is so important to a community because a stadium isn't living up to billionaire expectations. So I think that the conversation that is interesting is whether or not there is a role for the public to play in sports arenas and in these being like centers for entertainment and for enjoyment and for community building, because I think that sports teams offer a lot to their community. So I don't think that that's an unreasonable argument to make. I do also think it's really reasonable to ask whether or not this is just lining the pockets of billionaires who, to your point, have more than enough money, access, et cetera, to do this on their own. And why do we think that governments and communities need to subsidize something when they're not going to reap the monetary benefits of that? All right, let me take a very predictable position on this, which is that I think this deal is terrible and that New York should not do it. Uh, and now let me talk about the deal that's being proposed in Kansas City uh, with the Chiefs. And now, now I actually am... I'm not being totally tongue in cheek because there's two things happening in Kansas City. Oh, One, are you going to say you like the deal in Kansas City? No, is that no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah, Here's yeah, what okay. I'm going to say. I'm going to say. Yeah. I'm going to say this: that uh, I, I think the deal in Buffalo is a is a bad deal. Okay, but what I would be interested in uh, hearing from like Governor Hochul's office is what they actually think the job creation numbers are going to be out of this because that's why you build a stadium, right? Like that's why you build a stadium when you already have one. 
If you don't have a stadium, then you get to make a huge argument about, look, we're going to put this new venue here. We're going to have events. It's going to build all sorts of industry and commerce around it. Like that's a good argument you can usually make when you have an existing stadium and you're making the argument for why you need to build a new one. Well, now you've got to talk about how many people it's going to employ in the construction process and that kind of thing. And, you know, as a member of the legislature, like we were having that debate all the time about St. Louis and then the Rams ended up leaving and all that. Right. So with all that said, in Kansas City, it's a different conversation that's happening right now. And it's just kicked off over the last week. It started with the Kansas City Royals owner, John Sherman, saying, ultimately, yes, we would like to work something out with the city where we can move uh, to downtown. For those who don't know, uh, the sports complex in Kansas City, both the Chiefs and the Royals play in uh, stadiums that are that are next to each other. And it's out east and it's like not near downtown and it's not accessible to anything. So they've been talking for years about moving that. The Royals are saying they want to move to downtown and they haven't said what they need from the city yet, but obviously they would need something. Now, there's a big argument to be made for that because we're constantly trying to get more and more commerce, more and more hotels and restaurants and all that stuff downtown. So the Chiefs jumped into this and were like, well, wait a second, if they're moving, we're just going to go ahead and throw out what is the nuclear button that you can push as a big employer around here or a big you know, economic factor, which is Mark Donovan, the president of the Chiefs, just happened to casually throw out this week. Yeah, we've been approached by you know a lot of developers and people like that in Kansas who want to have us move across the state line. Clearly, the Chiefs are trying to posture so that they can get huge improvements and huge things done to the sports complex when the Royals go downtown because the Royals have a good argument. They're like, we're going to put a stadium in downtown. It's going to be great for the city. All sorts of great things will happen. The Chiefs just like, they'd like some new stuff. And I think that they're just working the problem. So, you know. Okay, sorry. Jason, I love all that detail. And how does that answer any of these bigger Uh, questions? Okay, here's how it answers it. Why should a city or a government in any way subsidize a vanity project for a billionaire? I have an answer to that. A happiness project for for fans, you mean. There's one circumstance under which they should do it. And that is the city gets equity ownership for its investment. That's the only way it should work. I agree. But I don't think that that's on the table here in Buffalo. I know, which is why it's a bad deal. Is is yeah. that common in most places? No, it's like, I don't think to my so. knowledge, pretty much never happened. I mean, I don't know how they ended up with like people of what Green Bay or whatever, having having a piece of the Packers. Oh, that's we true. Could, yeah. I don't Most know how that happened. There, but And I'm not saying that it should be like, you know, if you put hundreds of millions of dollars that all of a sudden you get to like help, you know, hire the GM. I don't want to politicize like who the coach is. But I do think that given the fact that these franchises, that they become more and more valuable year after year, and then that they freak, and then they get sold, like when they get sold, those returns should come back to the municipality uh, or the state or whatever that invested. That's how I think it. All yeah. Works. No, I mean these are good points. I think like taking my 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 sort of Skip Bayless hat off here. No, I agree. I mean these projects suck. I mean the Bills project sucks. They all suck. This is maybe the in the Hall of Fame of bad use of taxpayer money. As a fan, I'm excited to see the Bills stay. But like I think that you know the owners, they're emotional terrorists. They use this. Uh, they know how much we care about it. They know how devastated Western New York would be, and they 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 played that card perfectly. They happen to have a, a governor who's from Buffalo, and represented that area, which really helped. And you know, this is not a done deal, though. It has to pass the state legislature, so we'll see. You know, I just want the bills to stay. Honestly, I don't even mind the old stadium. It's fun. But I think that for me, this ties back to then, like, if this isn't going to change, because I think that we can agree that this is a screwed up system in which. 
someone who has made billions of dollars off of fracking, which is actively <laughs> destroying lives for and land for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. It's pretty disgusting to then subsidize them making more money off of a team that they will be given that money because people care about it so much and love it so deeply. That is a gross way to game the system. But if that's not going to change, then I think that something like the billionaire tax should be all the more fervently fought for, because at least then folks like the owners of the bills will have to pay somewhat close to their fair share back. Wow, you stuck that landing. Yeah, way to bring it around. Simone Biles here. Way way to bring it around. Yeah, yeah. So as you all know, we have this pledge to persuade. We want you to go out. We want you to recruit more people into the fold, you know, grow the majority, hence the name of the entire show. Uh, And let's hear from one of our listeners who has uh, taken that to heart. Hi, this is Adam from St. Louis uh, calling about how your show has helped convince. Uh, I have a good friend uh, who lives in Texas. He's an engineer, very intelligent guy who is also very uh, conservative. And most of his News comes from two primary podcast places, uh, the Ben Shapiro podcast and the Joe Rogan experience. And so how your show has helped is he asked me for a good alternative that wouldn't want to make him vomit, his words, not mine. And I turned him on to Majority 54, and that has been added to his rotation. Uh, he's a big fan of yours, Robbie. Jason, you got some work to do with him. Uh, but it's been great because at least we have a common language. He disagrees with most of the show, but you guys do a great job that he doesn't feel attacked, um, he doesn't feel like it's counter to his worldview, and we at least have um, some common ground, whereas before, uh, it would always devolve into a big argument. So thank you for that, and I'll enjoy listening. Thanks. So I was worried that we would not have a mention of Ben Shapiro on this podcast, but we, we hit it. We hit the bingo card. <laughs> Second is, it's funny to me and <laughs> that the conservative, and stay with us, conservative listener. And this Adam's is friend the, from Texas. Is Adam's friend. Calling. That the conservatives love me, Jason. <laughs> this, is like, this is a trend in my life now, I guess. I, Our more I liberal think... listeners have uh, some feelings about like some of the more small conservative things I say from time to time. First of all, I want to say good job, Adam. Uh, second, I bet there we have, uh, just anecdotally, I hear it all the time, I bet we have a lot of listeners who have gotten their conservative friends or relatives to listen to the show, and I would like to hear from more of them. So I hope that they will leave more voicemails like this because what I hope to do is have people like Adam's engineer friend who lives in Texas on the show to tell us, like, yeah, you said this thing this time that I was like, that is crap. But you said this other thing. And I was like, oh, maybe I should consider that. I would be very interested in that. Also, I'd like to know what he thinks about Grace. <laughs> We're going to gander, not super positive. Uh, Based on the <laughs> ideological spectrum of this podcast, I'm guessing, yeah. you know, Bobby, we'll, we'll see. We'll let him weigh in. He could send in a voicemail. Let us know about your pledge to persuade uh, 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Grace is at Grace Lynch 08 on Twitter. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbenayo. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander.
It's no secret that Hollywood has become increasingly vocal about their politics in recent years. Actors, artists, and creators clearly feel the responsibility of using their platform for good. The question is how? From Wonder Media Network comes a new show called The Accidental Activist. Former CNN anchor and acclaimed journalist Aisha Sasse speaks to cultural icons like Amanda Seals, Margaret Cho, and Jesse Williams to discover how an accidental turn of events can spark one's passion to change the world. Aisha unpacks the moment they decided to get involved with social movements ranging from gun control to racial equity. At the center of it all, they illuminate a core truth of the human condition, the desire to make a difference in the world. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.